0: The Echo Chamber, Chamber. in association with Diffusion. Diffusion, communication that connects.
1: Welcome to episode one of the Holmes Report's new podcast, The Echo Chamber. Many thanks to our sponsor Diffusion and our production partner, TVC Group. And thank you for joining us. Our plan, very briefly, is to break down the big events in the PR world every two weeks. Joining me for today's pod is our co-host Robert Phillips, formerly of Edelman Emir. Robert, welcome. Thanks, Arun. It's uh, good to be here. How are you enjoying life
2: post-Edelman? <laughs> life post-Edelman is, uh, is good. I'm getting some sleep, although my air miles are dipping. Uh, and I'm spending some time thinking about the future of our industry, where we're all heading, and what it is all about.
1: Okay. So, we have a few things to get through on, uh, on our first show. Later on... We are very lucky in that we are going to be joined by none other than Harold Burson for a special interview because it is the 60th birthday of Burson Marstella. Before we do that though, I thought perhaps we would uh, begin this by maybe just rounding up some of the big PR stories to emerge over the last two weeks. No better place to start, I think, than uh, than results season. We've seen, um, I think, all of the publicly listed groups have now come out with their financial results for 2012. And it's not a particularly happy story for the PR industry. Omnicom PR revenues up 3.3% in 2012. Interpublics up 4.8% in 2012. Perhaps the real story, though, is um, WPP, on a like-for-like basis, PR revenues from their public relations and public affairs firms declined by 1%. I'd be interested to hear what you make of all this, Robert.
2: Well, it would be remiss of me not to mention my alma mater, Edelman, which obviously was growing uh, more productively than some of the numbers you said. You wanted the the podcast to be light-hearted and mildly irreverent. Um, uh, but I guess there is a bit of a wake-up call in here for for some of the results that we're seeing and, mm-hmm. and p- possibly some evidence that others and other marketing disciplines are, are eating PR's lunch.
1: Mm. It's interesting because I think the... Um the popular view over the last few years has been that public relations is somehow the kind of favored child is is outpacing all of the other marketing disciplines because after all, who watches ads and because digital plays to PR strengths. Yet the numbers don't really bear it out. If you look over the last few years, at certainly at the publicly listed companies, the numbers don't bear that particular assertion out. I mean, at WPP, for example, which something like a billion dollars worth of PR revenue, uh, it was clearly outstripped by advertising and media. So perhaps the question I have for you in that case is, is this an issue for the publicly listed companies or is it an issue for the PR industry as a whole?
2: I think the answer is that it's an issue for both. Um, Without doubt, um, and you're right, people aren't watching ads and digital should find itself with a, a happy and healthy home within the world of PR, but that's not necessarily happening. And I worry that sometimes we delude ourselves as to just how much of a first mover or early mover advantage we had um, in the in the move towards social um, and digital. Um, I think that... Um, that there is a shift of monies without any measure of doubt, but that doesn't mean that the shift of monies has to be towards PR. And I think that we took that as read and perhaps became complacent over the past five years and didn't, as PR people, really make the case uh, for PR as powerfully and as frequently as we should have.
1: The other thing I'd be interested to hear your your view on is, is perhaps what the feeling will be at the various PR films within these holding groups, because one of the things that again, we're often told by the publicly listed companies, is that revenue growth is perhaps less relevant because they're going to be returning a much higher profit margin than perhaps an independent agency can. And yet, if you look at WPP's profit margin, it dropped in 2012 to below 15%, something like 14.8%. And so if you're not actually making that much profit and you're not growing, how do you reconcile both those things if you're heading a PR firm at WPP?
2: I do think that the results show that there is a strong case for, for independence within the industry, and of course I would say that, wouldn't I, <laughs> yeah. coming from a, <laughs> an Edelman background. Yep. Um, but I think that, and I, this is past the work that I've been doing since leaving Edelman and, and working on my next book, I think that we really need to think about more hub models and alliance models of PR networks rather than necessarily this swim lane mentality of the, the holding groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I was Sir Martin Sorrell and I was seeing the way that marketeers can switch money between groups depending on what they see coming through from data and knowing that PR is not rich in data and doesn't really understand analytics, Mm, um, I know where I would spend my investment dollars and it wouldn't necessarily be in PR. That's not to say that the case of PR cannot be made. What it is to say is that PR, A, has to get stronger in the analytics space, Mm -hmm. and B, maybe shouldn't choose to fight the ad agencies as it has done in the past.
1: Interesting stuff, and we hope that... uh... 2013 will bring back stronger growth for the PR industry. We move on. The next story is, is somewhat different um, and this actually comes out of the US but originally I think from Malaysia uh, and it's this story in, in BuzzFeed where they have uncovered uh, a, a US conservative blogger that was paid by the Malaysian government to, um, to then place paid pe- pieces on a range of media Um, We've heard of this sort of thing happening before, it's never very pleasant for the PR industry when it happens. In this case, some of the outlets included, allegedly, Huffington Post, San Francisco Examiner, Washington Times, National Review, pretty well-known titles. You know, we talk a lot about ethics in the industry, and yet these things happen again and again. In this case, um, the article makes mention of APCO's uh, work, very lucrative work from what I understand, for the Malaysian government. Um, what can the industry do to, to, to make sure these things, you know, just don't happen every so often?
2: I think the the truth is that these things will happen every so often, and so we need to get used to it. And I think that the, the fragmentation of media and the blurring of lines between what is paid and what is unpaid uh, will probably only make the situation worse. Uh, and if the situation doesn't happen in the US or in the UK, it will happen in another region in another continent. Um, we've seen these discussions before. Um, And I think sometimes we have the wrong argument. We try to have a moral argument about one person's Mm -hmm. liberator being another person's oppressor. And I don't think really we can sit in judgment on that. But as a profession, there's two things I think we need to think about. Uh, The first issue is the most fundamental one, which is about transparency and disclosure. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as long as we are transparent about with whom we work and the basis on which we work, and we disclose our clients either through registers or elsewhere, then I think that that is the first and most basic step in making sure that problems like this don't arise. The second issue is, in a way, more nuanced, which is this sort of competitive rush to publish. And we Mm. see this, and this may well be how the Huffington Post or San Francisco Examiner got itself into into the predicament that it did, um, which is that we try very quickly to get the story out there. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and you as a journalist will know, sometimes people have sacrificed double sourcing as a sort of sacred cow of uh, of journalism. But of course not me. Surely not. And, <laughs> Surely certainly, not, not. and certainly not on the Holmes Report. <laughs> but I think this sort of rush to publish, this writing to headlines, has led to people cutting corners. And I think that when you layer on that, this sort of blurred line between blogging and journalism, paid and earned, uh, I think you have problems, difficulties waiting to happen.
1: Your point about the... the... Full transparency, disclosure, a register. I mean, realistically, how far are we away from seeing that happen? Because, you know, people have been talking about it for ages. We have a certain amount of of disclosure in certain markets, the US being one of them, when foreign governments are involved in working. But there's, you know, the vast majority of PR work, there's no requirement to disclose. And, And why should a PR firm
2: therefore disclose if they're not compelled to? Well, I think the worrying thing is that we're living increasingly in an environment where people see regulation as the answer. Uh, in my way of thinking, regulation is rarely the answer. What we need is a better framework of principle, uh, a better code of conduct, if you like. Therefore, the more that we are by nature transparent and by nature we disclose, then the mm-hmm. less likely we are to be regulated. However, you you know, you see these grey lines constantly emerging most recently in this whole idea of sponsored tweets. What is paid media? What is earned or or free media? And I think the problem is there is confusion in the real world, so it's unsurprising there's confusion in the PR world too.
1: So you think the industry needs to change its nature rather than be compelled by any particular regulation?
2: I don't think regulation is the answer. Mm. Uh, and I think that by changing our most fundamental behaviours around transparency and disclosure, we can mitigate the likelihood of regulation. That's not to say that regulation won't happen. Um, mm. But that's also not to say that issues that have arisen in Malaysia with Trevino, with APCO, with the Huffington Post won't re-emerge. There will always be one, two, three, four lurking.
1: And given your 20-year career in the PR industry, how confident are you that it's capable of changing its nature when it comes to transparency?
2: Well, I think this, in a way, goes back to your earlier questions about the success of PR and the profitability and growth of PR within the holding groups. You know, I think that we're reaching something, if not a crisis moment or a learning moment, but certainly a tipping point within the PR industry where there are some pretty fundamental reforms that need to take place. So in the example, the Malaysian example, the issue is one of transparency. Uh, in the growth example, the issue is one of analytics and, mm. and indeed of measurement. So I think there are certain um, issues that we've sort of brushed under the carpet as an industry and mm. we really need to now take from under the carpet take a long hard look at themselves and ourselves and address them head on because otherwise we are heading for crisis. Some sunlight perhaps.
1: The other thing I wanted to ask you about regarding this story, and you did touch upon it, is the role of sites such as the Huffington Post. Um, it strikes me that because they have so many bloggers working for them, who from what I understand are not paid, how do they police all of the content that's on their platform?
2: <laughs> or maybe they can't, and maybe the lack of policing content is something that we are all going to have to live with. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about this recently and, and and rereading my Edward Bernays and, of course, his whole idea of propaganda and, indeed, Vance Packard and the hidden persuaders. Uh, and there is, in a way, a, a redefinition of truth. Um, and there was an Oxford professor recently who said, well, truth is simply what the crowd makes it to be. Uh, and I think we do have to beware that with the sort of, if you like, the blurring between blogging and journalism, and going back to what I was saying before about the need to, to double source. Um, so I think that we have to be wary about unedited material appearing as edited material. That's partly an issue of transparency, but it's really an issue of better editing, but also the pressure that we as citizens or we as consumers bring to bear on the publications we choose to read. So we, we accept that everything is
1: propaganda?
2: Is no, thing? we should trust those that we know are editing properly.
1: One of the things that also interested me about this is the role of an agency on a client. Um, now, it, when it comes to Malaysia, I think APCO you know, grew a particularly big and strong team to service this client um, and effectively acted almost like a de facto in-house communications department for the relevant part of the Malaysian government. There's another story I wanted to bring to your attention about New Zealand dairy collective Fonterra, which has found itself in hot water recently, if not hot milk, because of its... uh, because of finding...
2: Bats of steaming butter.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because of finding um, traces of some chemicals in its milk products and, and actually not disclosing this for four months. So you had that particular issue. And that's been used, I guess, as a reason to criticise the, uh, the PR agency arrangement that Fonterra has, where uh, a New Zealand agency by the name of Baldwin Boyle has effectively worked as Fonterra's in-house unit for many, many years um, and has been, you know, almost embedded within the company. What concerns you about agencies taking over the in-house function of clients?
2: Well, first of all, in the 25-year career that I've had, I've always been vehemently against agencies speaking on behalf of clients. Mm -hmm. Clients need to speak on behalf of clients. Um, Agencies can help shape the narrative. Agencies can help prep the client. But the statement belongs to the client, and the spokesperson needs to be the client. I think it's a slippery slope when you start to, to obscure the two. And again, that does go back partly to the transparency point that we were... We were talking about before. Mm-hmm. I think digging deeper um, and going back to your question earlier, question again about holding companies and the profitability, growth, and success of the PR industry. We have a a, a more long-term worrying trend, which is the uh, outsourcing, if you like, of PR departments to agencies and firms. And I think that poses a number of challenges to our industry, not least of which it increasingly commoditizes the industry. Um, mm-hmm. And while some may argue that well, that's great because it makes the client more enmeshed with the agency and therefore the agency less likely to, to win the business. That then leads to the question, first of all, is the agency best placed to give best advice? Uh, and secondly, how can we argue that we need to elevate the status of our industry to be a true consultancy-led profession if, in fact, we are basing it on an outsourcing sort of man and woman management model?
1: It must be an attractive prospect, though, for an agency, if a client you know, comes up and says, I'd like you to take over my entire in-house operation. There's the ability to mitigate risk regarding the agency's own position on the business. Um, Presumably there's much more control over client affairs than you would normally have. And how often do agencies complain about not being able to influence a client's behaviour?
2: The question is whether it's the right source of influence. Mm. And I think that it's attractive from a short-term pursuit of the dollar. It's not necessarily healthy for the long-term interests of the profession.
1: And we would never accuse the PR industry of a short-term pursuit of the dollar.
2: Surely not. If they did, maybe the results would be better <laughs> within the holding companies. Or maybe just that the advertising industry, digital marketing, pursues the dollar better, faster and further than we do.
1: I have no comment on that. We move on. Um, the Catholic Church has found itself in the news. Uh, it always seems to be finding itself in the news these days. This is the, the, specifically the affair of um, Cardinal O'Brien a scandal regarding his behaviour. Perhaps you'd like to take us through this and tell us what this means for um, for the Catholic Church in Scotland and beyond?
2: Well, I can't speak from a doctrinal or policy point of view, but no, I, can, I can help <laughs> you from the communications point. I thought there was uh, a couple of very poignant moments this week. One was which uh, yesterday, uh, the the service, I think it was in a Glasgow Cathedral involved all the bishops and priests wearing purple because that was the color of penitence. And I rather like that as a sort of visual metaphor for how we tell our stories. Mm. Um, I think
1: Prince would like it too.
2: Well, to he know. would. Um, and colour's been, been big in the news the Catholic Church, as, as you may or may not have noticed, that mm. the Pope has had to renounce his red Prada shoes. Mm. Um, I thought that might have uh, provided an opportunity for another <laughs> shoe, shirt, shoe firm to step in yeah. and offer him maybe a pair of brown tods, but it was not to be.
1: Would have been a great PR stunt, that yeah. one.
2: Uh, I'm not sure that necessarily. Maybe uh, Beppe Grillo could have uh, stepped in as uh, as uh, someone who was uh, close to the centre um, at the time. Um, I think what we see in the Catholic Church is, a, is, a, is a, has, has a number of parallels with. Um, some of the issues that we face within the world of brand communications and corporate communications um today um, and in many ways, the Catholic Church is a traditional institution really struggling to come to terms with you know how to deal with the modern world and more importantly how to deal with the the modern i wouldn 't use the word paradigm but the modern way of uh, the god modern, forbid yeah. The modern way of uh, communications and, and interesting, you saw that with uh, the Pope's Twitter feed. Nobody knew what to do with the papal Twitter feed when the, the, the Pope decided to, to step down from his post. So they, they yeah. retired the Twitter feed as though Ooh. it was a, a sort of hockey shirt sort of elevated into the, the Hall of Fame. Um, but I think that you've got many of the sort of classic conundrums of a traditional institution dealing with a different customer base or a different citizen base and different implications for communication. So here is an institution built in Europe, if you like, and now you get this with the College of Cardinals, people saying, "Well, you know, this we may not, we may not have a European Pope." But of course, the user base, the customer base, is is majority non-European. yeah. So again, sure. why would an organisation that was mainly non-European need to have a, a European leader? We see that in the the clients we advise and in our own organisations um, also. Um, we do indeed. Yeah. Um, you see that in, in how do you deal with a heritage brand or a heritage corporation and how do you contemporise it? Um, I, I would dare not say de-seasonalise it, like remove Christmas or Easter from the agenda, because I think that's probably um, a step too far. Um, But this does have an impact on policy and doctrine itself, and that's why you see the issues raging around homosexuality, around celibacy. And again, it's trying to find the way to bridge the communications divide between what the the user wants and what the institution sees. And I think the Catholic Church is struggling to modernise its uh, communications uh, around that also. Uh, and also you, you see some, 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 some stories beginning to take traction or get traction on social media that the institution just doesn't know how to deal with. There was a, a very witty, a slightly scurrilous and mischievous article by Andrew Sullivan in The New Republic on his blog at Sully Dish called uh, Two Popes, One Secretary. Um, and um, and that, that was a male secretary, by the way, uh, who is rumoured to look very much like um, George Clooney. But it was clear that with that story circulating in social media, the institution had no real understanding about how to respond.
1: Mm. Perhaps they need some social media counsel. Perhaps not. From modernising the Catholic Church, modernising the PR profession, maybe, the UK's CIPR, the Chartered Institute of PR in the country, is to send its members to schools to explain what PR people do for a living. So tell me, Robert, if you were being sent to a school full of bright-eyed children, how exactly would you describe your job? What would you say to them?
2: Well, my current job is unemployed <laughs> um, or or writing a book at best. Um, I think the first thing I think lots of things to say to students. um the first thing is probably to say, I'm sorry. Um, a, a lot of the the predicament that the world currently finds itself on is through the consumerization of everything and the marketing communications profession, of which PR is obviously a part, but not the whole part, has had a a significant role to play in all of that. Um, and uh, I think that. As we move towards this new era of more responsible citizenship and more responsible capitalism, hopefully we'll be able to take the next generation with us in a a different form of marketing communications. I think what's interesting is the fact that PR is just as misunderstood in the classroom as it is in the boardroom. Mm. Um, And actually, that CIPR survey, I've got the data here, the CIPR survey said that seven out of every 10 16 to 18-year-old students were unfamiliar with what a career in public relations would look like. So 70% have no idea what a career in PR would look like. Only 7% of all of those surveyed are considering PR as a potential career. So Mm. clearly, we've got uh, an image problem, we've got an explanation problem, and we've got an engagement problem.
1: So a good idea, then, you think, on balance?
2: Um, th- thou art Bernays, and on thy rock I shall build my church, go forth and proselytise. I- I'm not sure that classrooms are the answer. Mm. Um, what I do think, however, is that we need to make a better case of PR, and that goes back to the clarity of our purpose, uh, the clarity around our industry, uh, what we can achieve, what we can't achieve, uh, and the principles by which we conduct ourselves. This classroom point is really important, and I am wearing another hat here as Vice Chair of the UK PRCA Diversity Group. Um, I I really worry about the lack of diversity uh, in the industry in the UK, Uh, but what I'd like to know, and I'm sure you'd like to know, and I'm sure we'd all like to know, um, is whether this lack of understanding in the classroom and whether this lack of diversity in the industry is a peculiarly British problem, uh, or whether it exists in other markets, in other locations worldwide. We'd love to hear from you on that. So tweet us, mail us, uh, or even call us.
0: Um. You're listening to the Echo
3: Chamber. Echo Chamber. In association with Diffusion. Diffusion. Communication that connects.
1: Well, earlier on, we caught up with a man that needs very little introduction in the world of PR, Harold Burson, founding chairman of Burson marsteller which this week celebrates its 60th anniversary.
4: So, Harold, it's obviously 60 years of Burson-Marstella. When you set up the firm in 1953, um, did you think that, one, it would still be around 60 years later, and two, you would still be working for it?
0: Well, I would say, uh the answer probably is negative to both of those. Of mm-hmm. uh, course, I was 32 years old when that happened, and uh although I never did think about how long I was going to live, if you would have asked me back in 1953 would I be around until I'm 92, I would have uh probably uh, been very negative about that.
4: Right. And... In terms of the industry as a whole did you i mean could you have envisaged the p r industry developing to the point where it is today
0: uh, I would say by the time we established ourselves in europe uh I thought it could be, it would be a global business uh now would it reach the size that it is today, uh, I probably would have said, n- n- no, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have thought that uh, it would get a an agency that built more than half a billion dollars. I can remember a conversation I had with John Hill in the 70s when we did $8 million and and. H and K did twelve million dollars, and John Hill said to me, "Did you ever think our business would get as big as this?"
3: <laughs> Fantastic. When we met, um, Harold, when we met in Germany last October, you very graciously passed the mantle of the world's largest PR firm onto Edelman. Um, what advice would you give Rich Edelman uh, today in terms of managing that that scale? I
0: uh, You know, my feeling about it is that you have to have good people that you trust. Uh, You know, no one individual can manage a business at large without delegating, you know, 95% of all the things that have to be done. And I think one of the reasons that we grew as we did uh, through the years was that I had three or four people whom I trusted implicitly, and and I delegated a, a lot of the operating activity to them. And that, there was Buck, Buckwall, Jim Dowling, Bob Leaf primarily, but there were uh, 20 or 30 or 40 others in different countries who uh, had a lot of authority. And that's the only way I think you can grow uh, to the size that we've become or Edelman has become is by having good
4: people and delegating to
0: them. Right. Um, Harold, one of the, the major
4: events, obviously, in burson marstellers life was its sale to, um, to WPP. Um, I know Not this might be- Not to WPP,
0: be... to Young and Rubicum. Of course, yes. Rubicum.
4: First of all, to Young and Rubicum. Um I know this, is, this might be a tough question for you to answer, but if you had to do it again, would you sell?
0: I would under the same circumstances. I've never regretted that. Uh, You know, we were part of uh, a combination of an advertising agency and uh, public relations firm that operated independently of one another. But basically, we were one single corporation. And for the first 20 years or so of Ursula uh, growth, 30 years actually, uh, they financed our our expansion, the advertising agency did. And uh, for a good part of that time, you know, we were totally B2B. And then we started expanding in the uh, consumer field. And uh, Marstella tried to become a general agency and never really made it, although they did some very, very good work. For example, they have two of the 50 commercials in in the Museum of Television, 50 best commercials ever made. Uh, But their profitability started declining. And the other part of it was that Bill Marsteller was going to retire in 1979 and uh, there started to be tensions between the two organizations when Burson Marsteller became larger and more profitable than the ad agency. And so I was concerned about who's going to finance our business if we kept growing the PR business. And also I didn't want to uh, really get involved in settling uh, arguments between the two businesses. And uh, the other part about it was I thought the advertising agency was broke and I didn't have anybody to fix it. So Mm. I felt on the Rubicam would be a good part, and they had tried to buy us for 10 years or so. In fact, nine of the 10 top agencies uh, tried to buy a version Marstella.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And I selected Younger Ruth because they were uh, committed to staying, remaining a private, uh, rather a, an employee-owned agency.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and it happened for about 20 years, and then uh, uh, They sold to, they went public, uh, which uh, then led to the uh, takeover by WPP.
4: Sure. Robert, I just have one more question before you ask yours. Um, Harold, do you think, um, bearing in mind we've just gone through a period where, you know, I think in in the space of a month we saw something like three or even four of the top independent agencies in the world sell, um, sell out, do you feel like too many agencies are selling uh
0: you know i don't I don't really think that makes very much difference to to, to the clients um, um. we we operate pretty much the same way that we did when we were employee owned uh we don't have quite as much uh uh leeway as we did from a financial investment standpoint. Although on the other hand, we have even more because if we want to do a major uh, acquisition, which we have done relatively few of, by the way, uh, we've got resources to do it. For example, you know, we just uh, in the last what three or four months uh, acquired the largest agency in France. and that it was much easier to do it when you have WPP as a bank than when you have your own resources that you have to depend on. You know, the one thing that most people don't realize is how capital-intensive a public relations business is when it gets to be our size. Mm-hmm. If the agency does $100 million a year, they have to have uh, working capital of about 20 to $25 million.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: So most people don't really look at the agency model as sort of a cottage industry model, but when you get to the size of the top ten, it, it is very capital intensive.
3: Mm-hmm. And as a as a follow on to that, Harold, um, with so much consolidation in the industry, you talked about the acquisition of I&E in, in, in France by by Bursa. Um, wh- where do you think the, the fresh blood comes from, especially in the social digital age? And is there enough new impetus coming into the industry, or are we becoming, in a way, less a cottage industry and more multinational, big scale? Well, you know, I,
0: I don't think innovation is uh, uh, the, uh, the proprietary exclusively uh, done by small agencies. I think large agencies are just as capable of uh, uh, innovation as uh, small agencies uh, if you have that kind of a culture. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, Bertrand Marskeller has been innovative uh, for 60 years. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and I I I think the same thing of Edelman as a large agency uh so i i I don't really believe that uh, you can equate innovation with uh, boutique agencies alone Mm -hmm.
4: harold you were one of a generation um, of people um of pioneers i guess along with um, men like al Golin and um, of course the, the departed dan edelman um who helped define the modern public relations industry um recently on our website Paul Holmes wrote that he he didn't think we would see the like of 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 these people again people that would stick around with their firms for 50 60 years um do you agree with that observation
0: well i you know the world has changed so far as how people look at their careers. Uh, the reason it, that we grew, I believe, is that back in the 60s, 70s, early 80s, I was able to identify and hire probably 125 to 150 people who remained with us for 20 to 40 years. I don't think that's going to happen again. And the reason is that young people people coming out of college today, uh, they have no intention, it seems, a very little intention to uh, find a company where they can spend their entire careers, as was the case when I got out of college and my generation got out of college. What we wanted was to find a place where we could work for the rest of our lives and be satisfied and content and fulfilled. Uh, Nowadays, uh, there's much more transitory uh ideas about you know where you're going to work and how many experiences you're going to have i've had young people come into the office here who are leaving i love this company but i feel that i i've been successful here but i feel i've got to prove it that i can do the same at another place and uh we get a lot of that so i don't think that uh There'll be as many 40- or 50-year-old, 50-year, 10-year people in the future as there have been in the past. And the same is true with corporations. It's uh, it's just generational, I think. Mm. Robert, do you have
4: any more questions? I have two or three more I'd I'd like to ask.
3: Um, I know, I I suppose the most obvious is, Somewhat pedestrian question, but looking for a fascinating answer is is where do you think the industry is heading, especially with the arrival of deep data and, if you like, the resurgence of advertising, both after the recession and in its sort of new social digital clothes that it is wearing. Uh, my feeling
0: is that the, the uh, industry has got to go back to the very basics. Uh, What has happened in the last 20 years is that communications has come to be the identifier of what we do. When I think that public relations, which I think is the best descriptor of what we do, of any, consists of two major components. The first one is behavior. And the second one is communication. And my feeling is of the two, the one that's most important is behavior. And that is getting very little uh, attention today compared to what I believe it got 20 or 25 years ago. And so I think that you've got to get people who are able to uh, contribute to policy making and the decision making at the highest level And then when you make your decisions and take your action, you do a good job of communicating it. Uh, I just feel that really the turning point, as I see it, was Watergate, uh, if you look at the seminar list of companies for 1972 or 1971, you will find that Public Relations is in the title of more than 85 percent of the of that 120 people who were in there today, uh, public relations is not even in 10 percent of the of the members of the seminar, and I and I think it would hold true if you looked at the whole Fortune 500 list that way. So this is vastly more than communication. Uh, it is vastly more than marketing. Uh, I think that the coming of the internet has put the emphasis more on marketing than it has on uh, reputation and uh, uh, having what we used to call uh, a good name.
4: Mm. Um, And on that point, how about the reputation of the PR industry itself? Does it it disappoint you perhaps, after everything that you've worked for? and is it
0: something
4: yes, yep please go on
0: yes and no uh the, uh the, the no part the, the 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 part that uh i uh really uh, am concerned about is that uh, uh you know we we've had a love hate relationship with the media for as long as i've been in the business uh but today uh it we're not only uh, uh, put in a pejorative position, but also I think we're sort of trivialized by the media. Uh, The other hand, I think our clients value us more than ever. I don't think that uh, what the public thinks of us or the media thinks of us uh, has affected the attitudes of the client toward uh, what we do. Uh, And that is, uh, one example of that is that usually when there's a change in CEO nowadays, you can expect a change in the top PR communications person uh, in probably 75% of the cases because the two get together and work so closely that the new person wants his or her own uh, senior communications or public relations officer. So that, that's a plus of it. The other part of it is that we don't seem to be able to sell ourselves to the public or to the media in a positive way. Harold, thank you so much for your time. I
1: uh, enjoyed talking with you, and uh, good thank luck you to much. you, too. So as we wrap it up, Robert, anything to look out for in the PR world over the next
2: couple of weeks? I think there are going to be a couple of stories running that will continue from what we've talked about today, actually. Um, The first is around this whole idea of the future of the industry. Um, And I was struck yesterday by something in the Harvard Business Review. Marketing is rapidly becoming a war of knowledge, insight and asymmetric advantage gained through analytics 2.0. And I wonder just how ready PR is for that war of knowledge and the the second it's a war it's a war war. war out there and that's only within that's only within the holding companies Um, (laughs) um, and the second is this this point on the Catholic Church and obviously the papal succession uh, is going to run as a story for a while yet and I think that means that we'll take a long good look or a good long look even uh, at what succession planning looks like within the world of PR firms agencies and clients.
1: Not that the PR industry has any issues when it comes to succession planning. Certainly not agencies anyway. Maybe we'll leave that for our next podcast. So that just about brings us to a close for episode one of the Echo Chamber, the first, we hope, of many. Um, Thank you very much for joining in and listening. If you have any comments, you can reach us on our Twitter account, at Holmes Report, or on our Facebook page, or indeed on our website, HolmesReport.com. Thank you, Robert, for joining us. Thanks to the wonderful people at TVC for producing this podcast and, of course, to Diffusion for sponsoring it.
3: Tune in again to the Echo Chamber. chamber. Brought to you by the Holmes Report, in association with Diffusion. Diffusion. Communication
4: that connects.